Change is hard and it's also inevitable over the course of our adult lives. The average person will experience at least 36 big changes. Getting married, becoming a parent, losing a job, dealing with new technology and recessions and pandemics. And yet many of us resist that change. There is a better way, says best-selling author and human performance expert Brad Stolberg. Instead of fighting change, we need not just more flexibility, but what he calls rugged flexibility. He explains what that is and how to find it in his new book, which is called Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. Brad Stolberg joins me now. Hi. Hey, Jesse. It's great to be on the show. That pandemic changed things for all of us, maybe the only thing in the world that has changed things for all of us. Did that get you thinking about how we cope with change? That's right. I distinctly remember the morning that the kernel of the idea for what became this book popped into my (laughs) mind. I was in my kitchen on my wife's iPad browsing headlines, and they were all in the spirit of when are things going to get back to normal? Mm. Now, this was about 18 months into the pandemic, and I didn't know what at the time about that rubbed me the wrong way, but something did. And um, that led to a journey on why we try to get back to normal. Where does that mindset come from? And might there be better ways to think about engaging with change, be it global change, societal change like a pandemic, or some of the individual changes that you mentioned in opening? Yeah, because if you're striving to get back to exactly where you were before, you will not succeed, right? That's right. And this is rooted in an old belief system on change, this term homeostasis, which describes change as a pattern of order, disorder, back to order. Mm. But it's not a very accurate view of change. (laughs) More recently, the, the research community has come up with this term called allostasis, which describes the cycle as a pattern of order, disorder, reorder. Yeah. So yes, we crave stability, but that stability is always recreating itself somewhere new. Love that. Is it, is it, is homeostasis, is, is it in our nature to resist change and to, I guess, to crave stability? It is in our nature to crave stability, but we have more resilience and more adaptability than we think. And I think that that is the crux of the, the issue here. We often think that that stability has to be where we were or where we are. That makes us resistant to change. Instead of realizing that healthy, thriving systems they achieve stability through change. And I actually think, Jesse, the etymology of these two words tells the story beautifully. So the old model, homeostasis, comes from the Latin root homo, which means same, and stasis, which means standing. So it says that we achieve stability by staying the same. Mm-hmm. Whereas allostasis, the new model, comes from the Latin root allo, which means change or variable, and stasis, which, as I said, means standing. So it says that we achieve stability through change. And I love that because it's got this elegant double meaning. We can be stable through change. And the way to be stable through change is by changing, at least to some extent. Do some cultures have a better relationship with change than others, than ours? They do. And particularly in the Far East, individuals tend to get raised with what anthropologists call an interdependent viewpoint, which essentially says they see themselves as a part of an environment and in this ongoing dance with their environment. 
They're very relational. They're very adjusting. They see themselves as being affected by what's around them much more than in Western cultures where people tend to be raised with what researchers call an independent orientation, where we see ourselves as separate from our environments, as controlling, as being able to bend things to our will. And it's important to note that neither of these mindsets or orientations are quote-unquote better or worse. They're just different. It's also important to note that these are not genetic. These are learned. So we can adopt either of these lenses if we're aware of them and we practice wearing them and using them. It just occurred to me that um, one of the ways we try and resist change more and more is, is resisting the aging process. I wonder if the wellness industry is a symptom of our, um, of our tendency to cling to what we've got. 100%, and that is the change that comes for all of us. Yet we spend billions of dollars on lotions, potions, and pills that promise us immortality or at least immortal skin or eyebrows or whatever it is have you. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be beautiful, but I think a lot of that wellness industry, the engine underneath it is ultimately a fear of aging, which like I said, you know, you could live in a bubble, but that change will still come for you. It comes for everyone. I'm talking to Brad Stolberg, whose book is called Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. And Brad, you just recently had a big change. You went from writing a book to marketing one. I understand that's not your favorite thing to do. <laughs> that's right. No, I much prefer to be doing uh, the creative work of writing it. However, I will say I enjoy conversations like this, uh, and I enjoy wrestling and engaging with the ideas with other people that are interested in this kind of intellectual exploration. Life would be boring without change, right? It would be boring without change, Jesse. There's a fascinating philosophical thought experiment that I talk about in the book, which is to imagine that you could live forever and that everyone around you lived forever. And at first, this sounds wonderful. Who wouldn't want to live forever? Yeah. But then if you think about being here for 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 3,000 years, nothing would have any consequence. Life would lose so much of its meaning. Part of what gives life meaning is the fact that we know it will end. So it's this conundrum. Nobody wants to die, or at least a healthy, thriving person doesn't want to die tomorrow. But most people acknowledge that if we truly lived forever and nothing changed, life would become very boring very fast. There's that Buddhist saying, you note, uh, life is full of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, and you don't get to experience the former without the latter. That's it. I mean, to live is to lose in, in many ways. And I think that it is two sides of the same coin. Um, there are high highs and there are low lows. And part of what makes the things that we love so meaningful is the fact that they, they do change. I talk about a term in the book called tragic optimism, which I just love because mm. it is so paradoxical, right? You don't think of tragedy and optimism going mm -hmm. together. And this term was coined by Viktor Frankl in the mid-1900s. And Frankl acknowledged that there are three kinds of tragedy inherent to even the most average human existence. Yeah. Pain and suffering, because we're made of flesh and bone. Frustration, because we can make plans and they don't always work out. And then loss, because everything that we love eventually changes. So that's the inevitable tragedy in life. And what Frankl said is, even in spite of this, or perhaps because of this, the work of a mature adult is to go forward with a hopeful and optimistic attitude nonetheless. So not to bury your head in the sand, not to be delusional, not to engage in magical thinking, 
to accept the tragedy inherent to life and to go forward with optimism nonetheless. Is there a tension between doing what you counsel us to do, being flexible and rolling with the punches, and doing something that we're told to do all the time in popular culture, which is be true to ourselves? You know, I don't think that there is a tension here, and I think this gets to the central term that this book introduces, which is rugged flexibility. And to me, your source of ruggedness, those are your core values, the essence of who you are. These are the things that you do hold on to tight, that don't often change. But the flexibility is in how you apply them. So it's this beautiful non-dualism between, yes, knowing what really makes you who you are, knowing your values, knowing the things that matter to you most, but then being very flexible in how you apply them over time. And in my research and reporting on this book, it doesn't matter if we're talking about individuals, organizations, or even entire societies. Those that are both rugged and flexible they tend to persist the longest, and they tend to have a really gritty and graceful endurance about them throughout all sorts of change. You use the example of a Swedish Olympic speed skater to represent rugged flexibility. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, it's one of my favorite in the book. His name is Niels Vanderpool. And Niels won the gold medal in the 5K and the 10K in the 2022 Winter Games. He also shattered the world record. So he is the best long course speed skater to ever set foot on this planet. But in the lead up to the games, Vanderpool was underperforming a bit. And he asked himself why. And the primary reason that he identified was fear. He was skating with a lot of fear. And then he asked himself, well, why do I have this fear? And he realized that his entire identity was fused to being a speed skater. There was no Niels Vanderpool other than Niels Vanderpool, the speed skater. And that was an enormous burden to carry. Because one small change, an injury, a misstep, a wrong corner, that's it for four years. Mm. That's it. And that was just too much of a burden. So Vanderpool stepped back and he said, you know, I'm very rugged, but I'm not very flexible right now. So he did something that at the time is unheard of for an Olympian. He took a normal weekend. From Friday night to Monday morning, <laughs> he acted as if he was just a regular old person. He went out for beer and pizza. He went bowling. <laughs> he went on hikes. He got involved in his community. And it allowed him to develop these other sources of identity and other sources of meaning in his life. And he says that that allowed him to go and compete from a place of love and joy versus fear and compulsion. And he was able to skate to win instead of skating not to lose. So it's this other paradox, right? This book, Change is So Full of Paradox, that perhaps the key to really going all in on the things we care about is to make sure that we have other elements of ourselves that we also care about. And I think about investing, right? The number one thing, it doesn't matter who you are or where you live that you learn about investing is you want to diversify your portfolio, mm -hmm. right? And that's because if you have just one asset and that one asset changes and it changes in a negative direction, you're in big trouble. Yeah. Yet we often don't diversify our sense of identity. And I argue in the book that we should. And I think Niels Vanderpool is a beautiful example of that. That's great. One thing we often hear is um, we should strive for the simple life. Uh, longing for simplicity, stripping back complexity in our lives. But I wonder if, in a way, you're actually counseling us to do the opposite. I think that it depends. What I would say is it doesn't mean that you necessarily need to fill your life with infinite activities and people and places. I think it's just good to have more than one thing that gives you meaning. So another metaphor is a house. 
If you have a house with only one room in it and that room floods, you're in big trouble, right? But if you have a house with a couple of rooms and one room floods, you can go take refuge in those other rooms. And I like to think about identity the same way. So to get from philosophical to where the rubber meets the road, I'm a writer. I view it as a craft. I derive a lot of meaning and value from it. But I'm also a parent and a husband. I'm an athlete and I'm a community member. Those are my big rooms. So it's not that many things, but it's enough where if something goes wrong in my writing, if a book flops or I hit writer's block, I can lean into those other identities for stability. And when something challenging happens in those other realms, I can lean into the writing. So it's really just about having these different rooms in your identity house and being able to spend time in each when you need to. We've got four children, um, and, and we're always telling our children to diversify their friend group, have friends not just at their own school, but at other schools, not just their own age, but older and younger, not just their own gender, but male and female, kind of spreading that, I guess, spreading the risk in a way so that if something happens to your best friend and you, if your relationship falters, you feel strong. I kind of feel like that's, that's another version of what you're talking about here. That is. That's a really nice example. And I also think it's important to note that I'm not arguing that we all need to be quote-unquote balanced. It's okay to spend a lot of time on one thing or one component of your identity for a season of your life. I'm just arguing that you never want to leave the others completely behind. Yeah, so maybe with all my weekends of beer and pizza, I should take a weekend to do some speed skating. There there you go. Maybe you'll be a double gold medalist, Jesse. <laughs> Does this spill into politics as well? Do we lose something if we think of ourselves, I guess, in your country as a Democrat or Republican? Here, uh, uh, we've got a general election coming up as a, a Labour Party person or a National Party person or one of the other parties. Uh, can you see any parallels there? You know, I think that in my country here in America, we're living through a time of extreme polarization. And there are just infinite causes behind it that are out of my expertise. I will say that I think it is dangerous if the core component of your identity is a political party. I mean, that is tribalism to a T. It's all right to have values aligned with one of the two parties. But I think if you really identify more than anything as a member of a political party, I would say get involved in your local community, make some friends, have a have a hobby, because so much of politics, too, at least here in America, it's become national. It's become something on the internet. And I think that people mistake true civic engagement for entertainment. And politics almost becomes like sport. And I think that's a very dangerous place to be. I'm talking to Brad Stolberg. His book is Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. Brad, can you explain to us the difference between responding to change and reacting to change? You say we should do the former. That's right. Reacting tends to be very emotionally hot and instinctive and quick. We snap. It's like snapping when something happens and freaking out about it. And we generally regret doing that. Whereas responding, it's slower, it's more discerning, it's more deliberate. And we very rarely regret responding. So I've come up with this framework because every book like this needs at least one framework. (laughs) And it's the two Ps versus the four Ps. So when we react, we go down the road of two two Ps. We panic, and then we pummel ahead. We don't want to do that. When we respond, we pause. We process what's happening. We make a plan. We assess our skills, capabilities, resources, and only then do we proceed. And in that pause, 
we turn on our prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of our brain, the part of our brain that's highly evolved that makes us human, and we get out of that instinctive rash mode, and we tend to make much better decisions. And this is true on a daily level, firing off that email that maybe you shouldn't, or getting stuck in traffic, or having your dog have diarrhea when you're in a rush and you're late to a meeting. And this is true for bigger things as well, losing a job, um, a bad health diagnosis. So responding instead of reacting, it generally puts us in a position to more skillfully engage with what's happening. Is responding to change a muscle that you can build? I think so. I do. Uh, The research here shows that perhaps the most effective thing that you can do is learn to label your immediate emotions. So when an unexpected change happens, just about everyone does have an instinctual response. So the default is to go into a reactionary mode, and that's just programmed in us from millennia of evolution. How we can get out of it, though, is if we label our emotions. If we say, I'm feeling distressed, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling excited. Simply by labeling those emotions, we create some space between our situation and ourselves. And in that space, we slow things down. We give ourselves a chance to respond. And the more that we practice doing this, the easier it becomes. And this other key phrase of yours, focus on what you can control and let go of what you can't. People will have heard that before, but it's easier said than done, right? It is easier said than done. And I think that all of these things, these are ongoing practices. These aren't switches that you just flip. It's helpful to have words and to have frameworks for them because it becomes more concrete. It becomes real. That's why you and I do the work that we do to provide language for people. But once you have that language, when the rubber meets the road, it is just showing up day after day. And even if you just shoot 60, 70% on these things, you know, you're, you're making progress. Um, cause yeah, it's in every ancient text, the Stoics, the Buddhist, it's in Judeo Christianity, it's in Islam, focus on what you can control, not on what you can't. It's one thing to know that intellectually, it's another thing to practice, but I argue in the book that with practice, we can get better. Finally, can you give advice for people who are feeling overwhelmed with the big change with upheaval, upheaval, some advice on how to get unstuck? I think the first is just to recognize that you're in that cycle of order, disorder, reorder, and there's no getting to reorder without going through disorder. So just knowing that hopefully provides some consolation. And when you're in that period of disorder, being really kind to yourself, being patient with yourself, if it becomes so overwhelming that you feel like you can't handle it, seeking help, whether that's from a professional or whether that's from your community. And then a couple other small things can help. Trying to have something in your life that is somewhat predictable, just to give your brain a little anchor of predictability. It could be your morning run, it could be gardening, it could be going to coffee, it could be making tea. The thing itself doesn't matter. What matters is you just have something that you can control that's predictable in the midst of a time when everything feels like it's spiraling out of control. And then I'll say it again, I sound like a broken record, but just patience. When we're going through really hard times, There's this trick our brain plays on us where it feels like time slows down and it's going to last forever. Mm -hmm. But when we get to the other side of these experiences and we look back on them, they actually, they don't seem to have taken that long. So just knowing that you just have to show up and get through and eventually 99.99% of the time you arrive at a new reorder and you look back and you've probably grown and learned a thing or two. The book is called Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. 
And I've been talking to best-selling author and human performance expert Brad Stelberg. Brad, well done on the book, and thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me.